This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we look at some of our favorite horror films from the classic, the camp, to the cringe through the lens of disability. I'm your host, Nicole, and I'm thrilled to have you here. So, what is on the examination table for this episode? The 1988 film Monkey Shines, or Monkey Shines, an experiment in fear, directed by the George A. Romero. I've very clear and horrific memories of seeing some of this when I was maybe eight or nine. I think I mentioned in the very first episode of this podcast that my sister would never allow me to watch movies with her and her friends when I was little. So I had a little spot near our stove in the kitchen where I could see the TV from an appropriate distance and it also provided the benefit of being able to hide if things got too scary. I have a huge soft spot for animals and even at the age I was, was suspicious of any film, uh, particularly any horror film, that put an animal front and center because I knew things might turn rough for them. I managed to get through most of it with lots of adverting my eyes uh, when I thought that uh, things might uh, turn a little bad for our little capuchin monkey friend. To be honest, I don't think I had really watched it in its entirety until maybe I had come across it on cable when I was in high school, where I did watch it through to the very end. To this day, I feel a sense of anxiety when I'm about to watch any film where an animal may experience the slightest sense of discomfort, but that particular go was more manageable. Now don't worry, there isn't going to be a detailed and graphic description of animal abuse or cruelty here because honestly the film doesn't go as hard as little Nicole imagined it did. There will be conversation about suicide in this episode however and probably a bit more in depth than in other episodes where that's been a part of the film or films we're discussing. I'll give a heads up when we arrive to the point of that in the discussion in case that's a place you don't want to go. With all of that said, let's get in to Monkey Shines. A man trapped by his own body. To Alan, to the start of his new life. So you train monkeys exclusively for quadriplegics? How about if I were to donate a monkey? She hasn't been exposed to anything weird in the lab. No. An animal trained to follow commands. How am I supposed to take care of it, Jeff? The idea is that it's going to take care of you. She's unbelievable. She's like a miniature person. (laughs) Get rid of that bird or so help me. One with the mind for revenge been so full of anger. I've had the most horrible thoughts lately. I've made up a formulation based on human memory cells. I've been injecting one of my monkeys. Uh, 
I don't like this change in you, Alan. Whoever with the instinct to kill. What the hell are you doing to her? Ella is getting out of the house, and I'm getting out with her. You do know that that's impossible. Man is the only animal capable of murder. Ella, no! She did it for me. Did it because I wanted it done. Stop it! From the director of Night of the Living Dead, George A. Romero, the master of terror and suspense. You're not gonna hurt me. I'm part of you. Monkey shines a new into terror. Law student and athlete Alan is struck by a truck and rendered quadriplegic following surgery. As his overbearing mother and strict nurse try to help him, Alan now in an S&P or Sip and Puff equipped wheelchair, struggles to adjust. He eventually attempts suicide. His friend Jeffrey suggests he get a capuchin monkey as a service animal to lift his spirits and help around the house. Jeffrey has an ulterior motive, however. He is a research scientist under pressure to produce results, and he has been dosing a monkey in his lab with a serum to boost its intelligence. And he believes that the serum's effects will be amplified if the monkey is around humans. Jeffrey enlists Melanie, a specialist in training helper monkeys. Jeffrey provides the capuchin he has been experimenting on, lying to both Melanie and Ellen that the monkey is completely normal. Ellen names the monkey Ella, and he and Melanie were closely training her. Initially, Ella is a huge help to Ellen, and meanwhile, Ellen grows very close to Melanie. However, as time passes, Ellen grows more short-tempered and resentful. Ella, too, becomes more aggressive. Alan dreams of running through the grass at night, and he believes that he has a telepathic link with Ella, whom he suspects can escape the house. Jeffrey finds evidence confirming this, but pleased with Ella's intelligence, does not tell Alan or Melanie. After the pet bird of Alan's nurse flies around him, the irate Alan wishes it were dead. And that night, Ella stealthily kills the bird, causing the nurse to quit. Alan gets a second opinion about his paralysis and discovers that he may have been misdiagnosed. Another surgery may enable Alan to walk again. Before attempting the risky surgery, the doctor needs Alan to demonstrate some ability to move an appendage. Rather than feeling happy at this news, Alan is filled with anger at the surgeon who originally misdiagnosed him and who happens to now be dating Alan's former girlfriend. He fantasizes about burning the man's cabin down and that night Ella escapes and does just that, killing the surgeon and his girlfriend. After seeing news of the fire, the horrified Alan believes that Ella has been carrying out his dark impulses. He also realizes that when he is around Ella, he becomes easily enraged. Alan demands that Jeffrey take Ella away for good, and Jeffrey does so under protest. With Ella gone, Alan becomes more relaxed. He spends a weekend at Melanie's house, and the two begin a romance. Alan returns home and mends bridges with his mother, but he suddenly feels outraged at her disapproval of Melanie. Alan realizes that Ella must be nearby, and Ella has returned to the house after escaping Jeffrey's lab again. Alan's mother ignores his desperate warnings that she leave and instead takes a bath. Ella electrocutes her with a hairdryer. Alan briefly answers a call from Melanie before Ella disables the phone. 
Concerned, Melanie departs for Ellen's house. Jeffrey arrives and confesses that Ella was an experimental subject. The enraged Alan urges Jeffrey to leave, concerned for his safety, with Ella around. Instead, Jeffrey pursues Ella around the house, intending to put her down with one of the syringes of tranquilizers he has brought. Ella manages to take one of the syringes and injects Jeffrey, killing him. Ella returns to Alan, who is filled with self-loathing because he believes Ella is acting out his own impulses. He screams at Ella, but the monkey responds by urinating on him. Melanie arrives and Ella attacks her. This finally convinces Alan that Ella is not simply carrying out his desires. Melanie falls and is not unconscious. As Alan rages at Ella, she ignores him and prepares to inject Melanie with one of Jeffrey's syringes. Alan calms himself and moves his right arm to engage his tape deck. A peaceful music plays as he lovingly summons Ella to cuddle close to him, and she complies. When Ella is by his head, Ellen bites her in the neck and kills her. Later, Ellen undergoes a successful spinal surgery. He and Melanie leave the hospital together, and Ellen carefully stands up from his wheelchair to get into the van with her. One of the reasons I wanted to cover this film is because we have a character in Ellen that is experiencing disability in a different way than many of the characters we've covered here. His experience with disability is very new, and the film explores how someone adapts to that situation. What makes this particularly interesting in this film is that we spent essentially no time with Alan prior to his accident. As a viewer, it creates a weird dynamic with how we process Alan's journey because we're not just starting at the same place as him or a lot of the other people we meet in his life. Alan is a bit of an insufferable asshole, particularly as the film goes on, and that is to say he's a flawed protagonist, but one I found really relatable. He seems despondent, almost in shock for a bit of time after the accident. We get a couple of scenes of him in the hospital as he's recovering before he is discharged home, and he just has this blank kind of expression on his face and isn't really reactive to anything. Things are happening around him and folks are trying to talk to him, but he's in his own head. People are asking how he's feeling, but not asking how he's feeling. When Alan returns home, he has to reconcile former and present normal. He's in a familiar space, but that space looks different now, outfitted with tools and devices and furniture that are unfamiliar. The welcome home party that his mom, Dorothy, has for him immediately tells us and him that it isn't just the space around him that has changed, but the relationships, the way that people interact with him has changed as well. The fact that Alan has to navigate all of this without the proper emotional, mental supports is kind of heartbreaking and helps us understand his actions and outbursts as the film progresses. Now, we can't talk about Alan without talking about Ella because Ella becomes an extension of Alan and an outlet for the frustration and anger he isn't able to process. 
Ella is a gift of sorts from Alan's friend, Jeffrey. Rattled, finding Alan after his suicide attempt, Jeffrey wants to find some way to support his friend while having the bonus of furthering his research. Alan and Ella form a quick bond, and it's no mystery why. They share trauma. Ella is Jeffrey's test subject. Our ideas around animal cruelty in regards to animal testing have evolved quite a bit in recent years, and we recognize that her being subjected to this experimentation isn't humane by any stretch, and Alan is still processing the accident. In Alan, Ella has a companion that won't mistreat her, and Alan has found a companion that shows affection and care. While the film doesn't paint many of the characters in the kindest of light, it certainly frames Ella as our villain, as our plot synopsis kind of broke down. At first, Alan thinks that Ella is simply acting out on his dark impulses, these moments of rage and anger that he's experiencing that he doesn't quite understand. But he quickly begins to uh, piece together that he only experiences these outbursts when Ella is around and when Ella attacks Melanie. He begins to think that perhaps it's not just Ella acting on his wishes, but acting on her own accord. And I kind of push back on this. I think that Ella's anger is acting out purely on the complicated emotions that Alan isn't ready to handle and uses Ella as a scapegoat for that. Almost everyone in Alan's life treats him kind of terrible post to his accident in varying degrees. And we'll piece out these relationships that highlight that because that it simply becomes Alan feeling anger towards not just the way that some of the individuals closest to him are acting, but his inability to express it in a way that is healthy because he hasn't been given those tools to do so. Everything is so new to him that the uncomfortable act of calling people out on their shit when they do something, whether intentional or unintentionally harmful, is even more challenging. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the people in Alan's life and the relationships because I think that this is really fundamental in understanding Alan's relationship with his disability. And the first person I want to talk about is our nurse or home health aide, Marianne. She's hired by Alan's mom and we meet her at the welcome home party that his mom has for him when he gets out of the hospital. And right away we see that these are going to be two people that do not get along. She's really kind of abrasive and she is falls into a trope, I guess, of the uncaring care character. The person that is supposed to personify someone that's a caregiver, someone that is there to support someone, but acts in a completely contradictory way. And we see this with not only her being a little standoffish, but she soon just kind of becomes aloof to Alan and doesn't really do anything to help him and is more concerned about herself and her bird than taking care of him or, you know, really being helpful in any way. He ends up calling her uh, Nurse Ratchet. I think 
once or twice in the film and yeah it's just it's a very antagonistic relationship she calls him ungrateful like i said he refers to her as first ratchet and uh, i think is the first person that he really lashes out at when her bird kind of attacks him and this uh, makes her and the bird kind of the first targets of ella ella breaks out of her cage and kills the bird and leaves the bird in the slipper of Marianne. And it's kind of a pretty badass move by Ella. Um, I in no way condone the death of the bird, but it's very godfatherish in that way. It's like, you know, you're, you could be next, Marianne. You better step back. So Marianne gets out. She doesn't, she doesn't dawdle. She doesn't, uh, kind of wait around for things to escalate any further. She, she is grams and so she's pretty short-lived in the film in that regard but she does make an impact because again she falls into the strip of the uncaring care and is really the flip side to the next character that I want to talk a little bit more about and that is Alan's mom Dorothy, where Mary Ann fell into the trope of the uncaring care, mom falls into the overbearing to a pretty toxic degree care. And there are many, many examples of that. Um, I think I've mentioned a few in previous episodes, but you know, it's that parent that will do anything for their kid and crosses many kind of boundaries. And it really becomes less about the care that they're providing to their kid and more about optics on them, how people are perceiving them. You know, it's demonstrated, I think, pretty clearly from the very beginning when she has this welcome home party for Alan. Let's put ourselves in Alan's shoes for a minute and you've just had this accident. You're home from the hospital after, you know, usually a pretty prolonged stay because it's usually a mix of hospital and some type of rehabilitation. So you're home after a pretty long time. Maybe the last thing on your mind is a convening of all of your friends. And one thing that I think this film does so well is Alan seems really uncomfortable at the party and we get the interactions with all of these folks that we'll get to know a little bit more throughout the film and we get that taste of how these dynamics have shifted you know I'll talk a little bit about a a few more as we go on here but it's really well done but you can tell that this is something that his mom wasn't really thinking well this is something that Alan would really want she doesn't ask him you know do you want to have a bunch of people over when you get home it's kind of a welcome home get to see everyone again It's not on his priority list. After Alan's attempted suicide, Dorothy tells him that she's just going to move in, that she's selling her business and is going to be there full time to take care of him, even though he still has Marianne at that point. And she comes back after Marianne leaves and kind of does the same thing. Now, sure, this is a a thing that we may not be able to think is too beyond a, a normal reaction for a parent when their child has experienced something like this. And wanting to be there for your kid when they're obviously struggling is a, is a normal thing and a good thing. But her approach to it is completely, I think, equal parts overbearing 
And by overbearing, I do mean more. She's not asking Alan about what he wants. She's not talking to him about, um, you know, how she can help him in ways that are truly beneficial to him. She's really kind of thinking about it in a more selfish way, how it will look for her when people see that she's given up so much to take care of Alan. Things like that is kind of what I'm getting at when I talk about, you know, the overbearing aspects of it. She also, um, there's a moment where uh, it's after Marianne has left and she She's giving uh, Alan a bath or helping him in the bath. And you could tell he feels uncomfortable. And she's like, look, I'm your mom. Nothing I haven't seen before. And you, it's a really interesting moment because I think it also highlights why um, kind of this weird uh, kind of relationship that sometimes individuals have with family that are caring for them and why having people like Marianne come in and provide care is really important or certain kinds of care is important because, you know, having your mom as an adult help you in the bath is uncomfortable and having someone that that's their job uh, can help decrease some of that uncomfortableness. Of course, it may always feel a tinge kind of invasive in some way, but having that, I think, buffer really does sometimes make individuals feel uh, a little bit more comfortable. And that's something that I think, you know, that scene really demonstrates. And again, is showing that Dorothy isn't really uh, taking in what Alan's needs are. So instead of being able to tell his mom uh, in, I think, a, a healthy way, you know, you've overstepped some bounds. I don't want you here. I want you to kind of maintain your own life. He goes completely overboard and screams at her, um, calls her some names, and she she slaps him and takes a bath, as you do. And Ella then kills her by throwing the hairdryer in the bath. Ella is once again kind of used as that scapegoat for Alan, dealing with a lot of anger that he just doesn't know how to process and deal with. So the next character that I want to talk about is Alan's ex-girlfriend, Linda. So we see Linda at the very beginning of the film when Alan is going for his run, right before his accident, and then we see her again at the welcome home party. Now, Alan and Linda haven't broken up. They're still together, but we learn that Linda didn't come and visit him in the hospital, and Alan is obviously a little upset by that, and Linda seems really kind of flustered at the party and uncomfortable and doesn't really know what to do. So they subsequently end the relationship, and she begins dating Dr. Wiseman, which I'll talk about next. It's, you know, what I find really interesting about this is that we don't really necessarily get Linda as a, you know, we don't see what she did as villainous or, you know, mean. Perhaps you could say it's a little bit cold. We don't necessarily see her as being vindictive. She doesn't rub her new relationship with Dr. Weissman in Alan's face as kind of a fuck you. She doesn't do anything along those lines. It's, you know, simply her 
being a person not, I think, fully equipped to be in a relationship where she would have to take on a slightly different role that she was uncomfortable with. Should she have had, I think, probably more direct conversations with Alan about it? Sure. But sometimes that's just not how things unfold. And she got out of a relationship that wasn't working for her. And that's kind of what you have to do in those situations. There are certainly a thousand other ways that she could have handled the situation. But I think she did what she could to kind of exit the relationship while causing as little upset to Alan as possible. It reminds me a lot of Danny and Christian in Midsommar. Christian wants to leave the relationship with Danny. Danny experiences the loss of her family and ends up uh, staying with her, I think, out of a misplaced sense of obligation, where A ends up doing a lot more harm, I think, to her and ultimately himself by staying in this relationship. So again, she could have handled things perhaps a little bit differently, but I think leaving the relationship when you're simply not there and you're not able to kind of, I think, meet the needs of that partner, I think is honestly one of the better outcomes that you can can go for. While Alan is obviously hurt at the end of the relationship, I don't think that he's ever truly really angry at her. I think he's hurt. I think he's sad, but I don't think that he's necessarily angry. I think that he has so many other kind of complex emotions that kind of obscure that. I think when Ella goes and takes out both her and Dr. Weissman, I think it's really more targeting Dr. Weissman. And Linda being there is just kind of a, a bonus in some ways to get at someone else that had caused him uh, pain. So it's it's a complicated thing, but I'm glad that they took the route that they did with this character of not her being this completely over-the-top, ridiculous, villainous woman that is at almost all points rule. And that segues nicely into the polar opposite, which is Melanie. So Melanie becomes the new love interest. She is the trainer of Ella, and her job is training monkeys to be service animals, particularly for individuals who are quadriplegic. And she is really, in this film, the one character that is just purely nice and good, despite her having kind of a full workload with the animals that she's currently training, she is willing to help out Jeffrey when he comes to her and asks if she'd be willing to help train Ella so that he could give her to Alan. And we see the first time, I think it's the first time, that Melanie and Ellen meet. She goes over to the house and she is equipping Alan's wheelchair with kind of the treat dispenser for Ella. And there's just this really simple moment where, you know, she's putting it onto his chair and she asks, you know, is this okay? And it's a really simple moment moment and it's an important one because it really hits home the fact that this is one of the first people in the entire film that has checked in with Alan. Hey, is what I'm doing, is the way that I'm helping, is this action that I'm doing okay? Are you uncomfortable? She's checking in and this is obviously her her wheelhouse. This is what she does. So it's kind of second nature to her but you could tell that it does strike a certain chord with Alan because it is unexpected. There's also a moment where where uh, she takes Alan fishing at a point where their, you know, relationship is progressing. 
discussing and they're spending more time together. And it's clear that Alan isn't having a good time. He's a little frustrated and they just kind of pack up and go home. You know, she is able to deduce when a situation isn't working and kind of lean into that and make a move to make everyone feel a little bit more comfortable. So I, Melanie, and Alan take their relationship to the next level and have sex during, I think, a weekend where he goes and stays with her. I found the sex scene between Melanie and Alan pretty interesting. I do have a background in doing some trainings around sexual health and disability. One of the biggest issues, and I know I've mentioned this before, is that individuals with disabilities often don't get the kind of sexual education that they need to be able to talk about their bodies, their wants, their needs in those kinds of scenarios. And so to have a scene where it's two consenting adults figuring out what's going to work for them, utilizing some, some furniture, some tools there, and having a good time, I think is really, really cool. It also is a scene that kind of makes me even more annoyed at the ending of the film, which I will get to here in a bit. But um, the only thing that kind of rubbed me the wrong way about the sex scene is that it literally occurring in a room right next to a room full of monkeys and they're all losing their minds over it so it's kind of hilarious in that way but overall I think it's a really great scene to include in this because it shows that I think it shows us and Alan that of course he can still have the same kinds of relationships he's always had and it's just about finding that right person as it almost always is so I applaud its inclusion on that level and it's always nice to see a character with disability trade in a way that they have sexual agency and are having a good old time. So their relationship has really hit kind of this high mark, and Alan has essentially chosen Melanie over his mom. His mom is really upset when he comes home from this weekend. Now, I completely understand where mom is coming from in that she's not able to reach or get in touch with Alan during his time with Melanie and why she would be concerned. But just the established relationship I've seen so far, she obviously has taken this to a different level and their relationship is really kind of toxic and inappropriate in some ways. The anger that Alan has towards her, I think, is really about setting boundaries and his inability to really advocate for those boundaries. And so it's in juxtaposition to his relationship with Melanie where he doesn't necessarily have to do that. She's the one that's asking certain questions and really kind of attuned to him in a way that others aren't. So not to say that you know, mom then deserves to be taken out. But, you know, just the toxic nature of their relationship, how kind of awful she is to Alan in some moments. There's really not a ton of love lost when she dies because she's just been so to Alan in a lot of respects. The second to last character that I want to talk about is Dr. Weissman. He's a surgeon that operates on Alan right after his accident. Dr. Weissman falls into a similar category as Marianne the uncaring carer, but I do want to piece it out just a little bit more as it pertains to him. He misdiagnoses Alan's injuries, essentially resulting in Alan's quadriplegia, and he gets a double whammy of starting a relationship with Linda, fresh out of leaving Alan. Now, let's talk a little bit about the uncaring carer trope as it relates to Dr. Weissman. He's a competent doctor. He performs a surgery that he sets out to do on Alan, uh, 
very well. The other surgeon who comes in and identifies the uh, other, uh, I guess, uh, congenital defect in uh, Alan's spine says just that. Well, yeah, he did a fine job with the surgery that he performed, but he missed this. And, of course, looking at the x-ray in the movie, you know, a layman isn't going to necessarily be able to see what, you know, a doctor, trained professional in that field is going to be able to identify. So it just looks like a normal section of spinal cord. But apparently there's a congenital defect that was missed in the surgery. And the surgeon goes on to say, well, you know, he was treating uh, the injury from the accident. And it's kind of saying it it kind of makes sense that he may have missed this in kind of that emergency triage situation. So Alan is of course upset by the fact that Dr. Weissman didn't treat the proper injury. And I want to talk, I'll, I'll go into the misdiagnosis at the end. Um, but I, you know, that's obviously kind of the crux of Alan's anger with Dr. Weissman, as well as him starting the relationship with Linda. But Dr. Weissman is a bit self-absorbed, a bit pompous, but all in all, seems fairly pleasant uh, when dealing with Alan and his family. He doesn't, uh, you know, he doesn't say anything that's too cruel, too uh, kind of off base. He's a professional. And yeah, like I said, he's a little bit schmormy at the welcome party, at the welcome home party for Alan. You know, he's making these googly eyes at Linda. We have no idea of what their relationship is at that point. Uh, Linda is obviously in her own uh, kind of world at that uh, party and just dealing with the fact that she needs to kind of exit this relationship with Alan. And so, you know, there's nothing to give us any indication that they've established, you know, a relationship that they're dating at their at that point. But, you know, he's being a little predatory on her, you know, just kind of like uh, inserting himself in her space in a way that I think is clearly making her uncomfortable. And I would say that's probably, you know, the one uh, bit with him that really kind of makes you dislike him. Otherwise, he's just kind of your run-of-the-mill, you know, kind of full-of-themselves jerk that you can brush off. And I, I find it interesting that so much anger that Alan has is, I think, rightfully placed. It isn't necessarily about the relationship with Linda. As I mentioned when talking about Linda, I think Alan has come to kind of this understanding about that, that, you know, if someone doesn't want to be with me and they leave, it can be hurtful. I can have complex feelings about it. But at the end of the day, it is just that, you know, it's not a relationship that is meant to flourish. And of course, at this point, he and Melanie have established a much healthier 
I would say, relationship. So I don't think that he's yearning um, for Linda in that way. So his anger is really focused on the fact that Dr. Weissman didn't notice or didn't acutely understand the impact that this congenital defect on his spine had had and that that was a real issue that was causing uh, his paralysis. So the result is that Dr. Weissman gets taken out. And Dr. Weissman gets taken out along with Linda, as our plot synopsis so uh, astutely described. There is a house fire, and uh, Ellen is getting visions of it from Ella's POV, because of course she's someone that's uh, setting the flames. And Alan struggles with this. Uh, his mom is with him at the time, and he comes down, and she's just heard the news, and she relays that to Alan. As upset as Alan is, I think he then begins to really connect a lot of dots of, you know, his kind of toxic emotions are having an impact on the well-being of these people around him. And I think that that makes kind of this realization, even this news of the fire and the realization was going on a lot worse. Now, if it sounds like I'm giving Dr. Weissman a pass, it's not necessarily so. One of the things, especially for individuals with disabilities and their relationship with their healthcare providers, is that it's really important to have trust and comfort in being able to talk to them and continue that relationship. Um, you know, we are not in a position of where, you know, once a year we go in and get, you know, a checkup or we see our doctors in a sporadic nature. We're often seeing our doctors with some more regularity and that regularity combined with the additional kind of health concerns means that we have to be able to have open dialogue with them. We need to be able to talk to them about how we're feeling about certain things, be able to give them updates on any kind of changes. All of that complexities within the relationship exist. And if, you know, there's not trust and a comfort there, that's really damaging. And it's not, I think, a fruitful, uh, you know, relationship to continue. So, you know, Dr. Weissman kind of sacrifices a healthy relationship with this patient in order to pursue a relationship with Linda. And, you know, again, going back to, you know, the feedback that the other surgeon gives is that, yeah, he's competent, but he's also kind of an asshole and, you know, really full of himself. And because of that, he can be kind of sloppy sometimes and miss really important things. So, no, Dr. Weissman, not a good dude, but I think as we've talked about with some of these characters, not necessarily the uh, cartoon-level villain that we may come to expect in films like this. Now, the last character I want to talk about is Jeffrey, Alan's best friend and the researcher that brings Ella into Alan's life. So, Jeffrey, to me, is the very definition of a horrible person, but a really great friend. Now, I've talked about Jeffrey as we've talked about other characters, but I think one of the things that's really important to hit on here is that 
He truly is the best friend to Alan that he can be. He's there for Alan in ways that others aren't. He respects Alan, talks to Alan as, you know, a person when he first gets home. And we see that some of those other relationship dynamics change where people, you know, are uncomfortable around Alan because they don't know what to say. Where Jeffrey doesn't miss a beat. And Jeffrey obviously cares very deeply about Alan. I mean, obviously we see that with him bringing Ella into the fold. Yes, it is kind of a, a mutually beneficial situation with, you know, this being a crucial part of his research with Ella, but I don't think that he would have pursued that particular route if it wasn't something that he felt would be very, very uh, beneficial to Alan as well. Jeffrey is always very quick to come to Alan's defense or say what's on his mind if he sees something that he feels is harmful to Alan. I mentioned him lashing out against Dr. Weissman and Linda when he sees him at the hospital after Alan's suicide attempt. He, you know, calls Linda a clinical cunt and goes in on Dr. Weissman to much the same degree and, you know, is really combative when he sees that someone is not working in Alan's best interest. He truly is a great friend and when he finds Alan after his suicide attempt, you can just understand what's going on in his head, how impactful and um, just difficult that would have been in that situation to have someone that you care about um, in that situation and, and want to do everything that you can to help them, but not necessarily knowing what the best route is. He also just tries to, uh, you know, continue to have that normal relationship with Alan, where all the other relationships that Alan has in his life seem to have shifted after his accident, which I would argue that maybe some, uh, you know, are unavoidable. When we're at that welcome home party, Alan's coach is there, and, you know, it's, uh, Dr. Weisman has this really uncomfortable moment where the, the coach introduces himself and he's like, yeah, uh, yeah, well, that's not happening anymore, huh? So it's great to have a character that's really invested in kind of keeping a, a sense of normalcy for Alan. And again, I think truly, truly cares for him. But this is all to say that as good of a friend as Alan is, he's kind of a terrible person. He is, uh, you know, his research and his research subjects, his treatment of those research subjects is awful. But we also come to understand that that's just part of the institution that he is employed with. There is a sadness when Jeffrey is taken out. Um, you know, he's a character that we have come to, I think, relate to in some ways. We always want the best for our friends. And if we see our friends being done dirty, we want to come and defend them in any way that we can. We care about the people that we care about. And we care about them in really intense ways sometimes. And so, you know, sometimes those translate into really kind of great and productive and, and healthy uh, actions. And sometimes they result in some of the things that Jeffrey does. But you never really question his care. And it is really sad when he is taken out by Ella. Although it is very fitting. And it's kind of surprising that Alan doesn't necessarily have the strongest reaction to that. Because, you know, Jeffrey hasn't done anything uh, really to him in a super direct way. Again, bringing in Ella when he's lied to both him and Melanie about uh, the research that he's been doing on her. It in the experimentation, I think, obviously is the precipice of all of this. But... Um, you know, I, I would think that Alan in 
a, a certain kind of logical way would be able to be like, well, but he also was doing this to help me and could not have conceived that Ella would act in these kinds of violent ways. So, um, you know, Jeffrey's a really complex character, but it's great to have a friend that is just kind of ultimately supportive. And we kind of get this uh, kind of complex character with that as well. I've talked about the intersection of mental health and disability a handful of times here. And this film, while not making an explicit point, puts a real interesting stamp on this topic. I don't think I'm saying anything revolutionary when I say that being hit by a vehicle would classify as a traumatic event. But there's not even a mention of this or an offer of any kind of specific services that would help Alan in that way as we see as we see him returning home. I mean, not only is Alan probably dealing with the trauma of the accident itself, but after effects. His life has changed in massive ways and it doesn't even register as an afterthought as we're looking at what his return home looks like. There are a number of different studies that will look at the intersection of mental health and disability. And one of the things that I think comes out from many of these studies is that there's really two components at play. One, which I've just kind of hit on, is that individuals with disabilities often go undiagnosed with different mental health issues because the focus is on perhaps physical disability. So it's more about the physical care and the depression, anxiety, and other things will often go either undiagnosed or uh, I, I, I don't know what the exact right word is, but kind of just overlooked in general. Well, if we're able to manage some of these physical symptoms, then the mental health issues will sort themselves out. And that's not how it works at all. And I applaud this film for kind of going there in a lot of ways. We see that Alan has access to so many different resources and tools and things to make his transition home fairly easy from a physical regard. We see his house has been set up with all of these different things to help give him independence and autonomy that make some of the day-to-day -day activities feasible and more comfortable for him. Now, that should be it, right? As long as he has those things, he shouldn't have a care in the world. Everything is fine. Well, that's always the assumption, but that's not the truth. There's still a lot of emotional and mental uh, kind of things to piece and process through, and none of that is addressed. And I think particularly individuals that acquire disability via accident or trauma, or, you know, even those that are born with disabilities and undergo, you know, that spend time in the hospital, let's say, for a surgery or a procedure, and we then return home. There's no kind of mental health aspect to that transition. So um, that's one component. The second component is really just looking at things from a much more long-term perspective. If we look at Alan's situation, you know, we're looking at huge life changes, changes in relationships, all things that we've touched on here. And having that built-in emotional and mental health support, I think is really crucial to making sure that you're getting the best health outcomes. So again, it's often things that we don't see as part of an ongoing care plan, but are really crucial in, you know, the holistic uh, care of an individual. Although I referenced it, I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about Alan's suicide attempt. The attempted suicide happens fairly early in the film and feels like a true gut punch. Once he's released from the hospital following, it isn't really brought up at all. And I think a lot of this is fueled by stigma and fear. And this, once again, leaves Alan without the kind of services that he needs. There have been a number of studies that highlight how individuals living with spinal cord injuries experience 
suicidal ideation at a higher percentage than other groups. And a lot of these studies were actually uh, starting to come out um, in the 70s and were following um, individuals with spinal, spinal cord injuries through like 20 or so years and really tracking uh, some of this information. But there's an estimated 5 to 10% of spinal cord injury patients that contemplate suicide, six times higher than in the general population, according to the Kessler Institute in New Jersey, one of the nation's top rehabilitation centers. Suicide is often cited as being one of the leading causes of death of individuals living with spinal cord injuries, usually behind pulmonary or lung disease. Death by suicide is higher among younger individuals under the age of 55 and usually occurs within the first few years of their injury. Jeffrey finds Alan after his attempt and is able to get him to the hospital and get him help. He's admitted and Dr. Weissman is there and prescribes him some medications and that's it. That's really all that happens as a result of this. I think Jeffrey reeling a bit from the experience himself and wanting to do something for his friend then has the idea to uh, give him Ella as a service animal. And then that's when we get him working with Melanie and we get into that story. I really wish that there was a lot more to kind of piece out in terms of how people reacted to this, the kind of supports that were introduced, the conversations that were had, but this film just kind of puts it out there and that's it. And as frustrating as that can be, I think it's unfortunately realistic, particularly probably of this time, because I would say that things have perhaps gotten a little better with inclusion of mental health services and overall care plans. But it's, you know, I still think uh, a real common issue and it's an interesting and important inclusion into this film. I want to wrap up talking about the film's story by talking about the ending. In a delightful change of pace, our protagonist that uses a wheelchair now has the ability to walk again because of course he fucking does. Tale as old as time. A happy ending for a disabled character relies solely on them no longer being disabled so we may have a level of perceived worth in society. So let's go back to that uh, misdiagnosis of sorts by Dr. Weissman. So Alan and Melanie go and get a second opinion because Alan is knowing is noticing that he's able to get some movement in his arm or notices kind of like a flinch. And so they go and this is when it's discovered that he has what's called a congenital uh, defect of the spine. This film does nothing to further explain it, show it, whatever. But the doctor states, you know, it's just uh, an issue with your spine. The paralysis is more than likely caused by this. And it could have happened at any time. It could have happened when you were walking across the street. Well, what's interesting about this is if we go all the way back to the very beginning of them, when Alan is going out for his run, he loads up a backpack full of bricks. And I'm that's not hyperbole. It's I'm not exaggerating. It's literally a backpack full of bricks. 
that he straps to himself along with like weights on his wrist and ankles. It's a lot and it's maybe the most ridiculous aspect of this film because who the fuck does this? Um, you know, I've seen people that will, you know, have some weight of a backpack with, you know, a little bit of weight to it, but not one that's literally filled with bricks um, to go for a run. One of the things that I've noticed, I go to a climbing gym and when individuals are getting ready to like go on a big outdoor climbing trip, one of the things that they'll do as part of like their prep is utilize the stair machines and put kind of have with them a backpack that has, you know, the weight of what they would carry so that they can be used to kind of carrying that extra weight because when you are climbing, you have to carry a lot of supplies, a lot of gear on you and it's really heavy. So that makes sense. Having a little bit of weight to you as you go for a run um, in, I think, specific ways makes sense. Putting a bunch of fucking bricks in a backpack makes no sense. So why this guy's spine wasn't fucking condensed to dust to begin with is a medical marvel, to be frankly honest. I would pause it. But again, I'm not a doctor, so don't take that with any uh, actual uh, merit there. But yeah, it's... It, but the doctor is able to go in and perform a surgery that repairs this issue. And so we get, at the very end, Alan being able to walk. Now, he's not running. He's not... He still, you know, has some recovery ahead of him. And I do appreciate that. But um, it's really frustrating to have a character that... But I think his whole journey has been about kind of coming to terms with, hey, this is my life now, and it's not actually that bad. He's able to go back to school. He has a lot of independence. He has a girlfriend that he has a sexual relationship with. These are all things that are set up as him losing as a result of his accident. He loses Linda. His professor is at the welcome party and there's this really awkward conversation about, well, can he go back to school? Well, physically he can, but will he want to? Well, why wouldn't he necessarily want to go back to school if it's something that he has worked really hard for? It's something that he wants to continue so that he has a life in law. That's what his passion is. It's, he has access to all of these things while using a wheelchair. And it's a really kind of great representation of, of being able to live fully in that regard. But it's completely counteracted by this ending. Now, there is an alternate ending where we, I believe, instead get um, Jeffrey's supervisor being attacked by monkeys. And I don't know. I, this is obviously an ending to go with, but I don't know. It just, it rubs me the wrong way for that reason of just, you're actually setting up a character that is living a pretty great life and we still only can find value in it if they are no longer disabled. I don't know. It just, it's, it just really, really puts a damper on, I think, some of the stronger aspects of this film. Now, to wrap up, the discussion of this film totally, I will uh, mention that this film brought on protests by disability uh, 
advocacy groups, one being PACE, which if you uh, know anything about kind of the disability uh, rights movement, PACE is an organization that was known for staging protests, particularly around public transportation. And these were individuals that would, you know, chain their wheelchairs to buses to protest against inaccessibility to public transportation. And they, of course, beyond that, were really active in the ADA, which, again, the ADA came out right around the time of this film. Um, but were, you know, they were really active in uh, ADA movement as well as the Olmsted Act. So, um, but they protested this film due primarily to the marketing. There was this whole marketing uh, kind of campaign around uh, showcasing a monkey in a wheelchair, and the organizations kind of uh, bristled against that and its portrayal. And so the company ended up pulling the marketing. I believe not only did they have some issue with the marketing images here, but also, you know, the portrayal of an individual with a disability and a service animal, which, you know, I I actually think is decent. You know, we've talked about how, you know, the using the service animal as essentially a scapegoat for not dealing with just general frustration and anger um, is pretty awful. But all that aside, um, you know, it, I, I think it's interesting to note that this was a film that came under some scrutiny from some pretty prominent groups in the kind of disability advocacy arena. So that will conclude the episode on monkey shines again thank you for listening i hope this has been uh an interesting conversation i to be completely honest i really did like this film i thought it was really interesting i think the uh acting in it is really really good um and it's such i i think if you are used to a very specific type of george romero film this is going to be something very different And yeah, I really like it. If you happen to have HBO Max, I know it's accessible there. So if you haven't seen it, give it a watch. I, I really like it. And you get a, a young Stanley Tucci as Dr. Weissman and you know, you want to see it. So check it out. Bodies of Horror is a very proud member of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. If you haven't already, please make sure that you take a moment to subscribe and while you're doing that, rate, review. Those are really, really helpful in helping other people not only find bodies of horror, but find all of the amazing shows on Anatomy of a Scream's feed. So make sure you do that. It's really appreciated. Now, if you want to reach out to me, that's also appreciated. You can do so by shooting me an email at bodiesofhorror at gmail.com. Or you can find Bodies of Horror on Twitter at Bodies of Horror. Keeping it all pretty simple for you. So, again, thank you so much for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And until next time. Scream Pod Squad.